You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. All right. Welcome back. Good to see you all. Good to see you all. Great to be back with you. Thank you. Some of you I don't know. Some of you are new. So it's great to uh, see you and I look forward to uh, getting to meet you. I I really could spend a lot of time and I'm going to have to be very limited talking um, just about the summer. I I really just want to say thank you and uh, thank you for your support of us, for Ginger and me as we, uh, if you're new here, um, we just came back from uh, three months uh, of sabbatical. So it was really life-changing for us in so many ways, I think. I mean, I guess you'll see, uh, someone asked me, what'd you learn and what happened? So asked me about like six months or a year from now. It's like going on a great conference. The life change shows over time. So ask us in a year how we were changed, but we feel very changed right this moment. I trust we'll walk that out. Uh, And came back just feeling refreshed, closer to the Lord, uh, closer to one another, Ginger and I. Um, so thank you for supporting us in that. And this week, uh, it came back into the office this week, so Tuesday. And this week has been like drinking from a fire hose, just actually getting caught up on three months of what happened in the church. And every day, somebody will mention somebody, who's that? Well, that's a new person. Somebody, what happened? Wait a minute, what? I'm just constantly getting caught up. So thanks for all that you did this summer. Uh, VBS, the mission trip, the classes. I've heard great, I haven't listened to them yet, but I've heard great things about the classes. Uh, Launching community groups, came back and there's new community group leaders. Some of them I've never met, not true. But anyway, there's new, new leaders. There's pastors I've never even met when I got back. This is amazing what happened. Uh, What happened to the old guys? Uh, So it's just been really, really wonderful uh, to see all that the Lord has accomplished. And I want to thank you for just uh, jumping in. And sometimes uh, when the, the primary preaching pastor takes off for a while, sometimes people in churches scatter and such and this sort of thing. And uh, that is not what happened. Uh, Things went on and improved and got better while I was away. So thank you. And I particularly want to thank the the pastoral team. Uh, Thank you, guys. I mean, absolutely. Caleb, just the amount of pastoral ministry you did while I, while I was away, uh, the amount of people you touched w- base with personally and cared for, and uh, I mean, you taught, you did taught a class, you preached a lot more, but thank you uh, for all of that. And Rob, thank you as well. You were kind of the primary preacher while I was gone, and he was sort of taking my spot in a lot of roles while I was gone. So thank you for bearing my responsibilities alongside your responsibilities and doing so so faithfully and uh, people just were encouraged by your leadership so thank you for that and Bob it's just great to have you alive man I mean seriously can we thank God for Bob I mean, Bob's, it's his first Sunday back. If you're new here, he's one of our elders and on the front row here, but he had open heart surgery. So I was in England getting texts. I thought, man, Bob, I can't even come see you one last time before you go to be with the Lord. I didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> but anyway, I was able to talk with him. The, the, I was guarded from everything. The guys were, I got one phone call about one matter all summer long in the church. Uh, but I didn't know anything that was going on, which is the way it was supposed to work, the way they wanted. But I did know about this and was able to talk to Bob uh, on the phone while I was in England. But um, just, it is so good to see you up and around. And he came back to the pastor's meeting this week and, as you would imagine, was contributing. And uh, it's just wonderful to see how the Lord, he's got a, quite a story to tell, uh, as I've heard his story. So you want to hear that about how God providentially... Um, just met him at every step along the way, and he's probably above, uh, beyond, you know, beyond the curve in recovery already. So isn't that the goodness of the Lord? But Bob, you did so before, you know, in, in May and June, you were you were preaching. You were. Uh, I came back. There's a brand new class happening or something. So I mean, so much is going on. But you were just really faithful in uh, in all the responsibilities and and bringing your 
gifts and wisdom to bear in serving people and uh, caring for the church as well. Um, so thank you to all the elders. Tim, who's our administrator, uh, he's, uh, thank you, Tim, for just holding down the fort, and he keeps everything running, and he takes all of our ideas and, and uh, kind of makes them happen. So thank you to him as well, and uh, it was great just to get back with him and hear all that happened. So a lot went on this summer, and um, I'm just so grateful. We were able to worship at a number of different churches, a lot of churches in the city here, uh, which was really wonderful. We worshiped uh, different places uh, in the UK as well, but a, a lot here uh, in Frisco while we were gone. And th that was so refreshing in many ways just to see how much good gospel work is happening in this city. We are very blessed uh, with the churches in this community. There are a lot of strong uh, biblical churches here. And so I, th I praise God for that. But having said that, while we enjoyed every church we visited and worshiped at, um, there's no place like home. And uh, we felt that all summer. So it is great to be back. And we missed you, love you, and um, it is so good to be, to be back with you. And uh, I'm going to wrap up the Summer in the Psalms, which is really weird, an entire series. And that was the other thing, just to stay detached from what was happening. I haven't even listened to the messages of what happened this summer. So uh, someone recommended to me, no, they're going to say stuff. It's going to draw your mind into what's going on. Just, just, uh, just go worship somewhere else. So that's what I did. So I'm walking in. I'm going to conclude this series, which has meant so much. Uh, I, I know it's been a great series. I got an email, I got multiple emails about how great of a series it's been. So I know the guys have taught well. I just haven't tracked with them all. So I don't feel like I have the continuation to, to bring to an end what they all did. Uh, but I, I do want to talk about something that's uh, very meaningful, a psalm that's very meaningful to me and was really live to me all summer. Um, and while I can't just give a slideshow about what all I learned and uh, all that kind of stuff, I trust what the Lord did in our heart will just show up in sermons, I hope, every week for, an, for quite a while. Uh, but it's certainly going to show up today uh, in, this, in this text that we are going to read today. So let me pray, and uh, we'll jump in. Lord, thanks for a sweet reunion and thanks for faithfulness to all of us. You're faithful in all of our lives. Thank you for your hand upon this church. Uh, thank you that it's not the leader's church. It's not the church's church. It's your church. And thank you that you care for your church. And uh, thank you for all of those who served so faithfully this summer and all the different things that happened. And uh, thank you for this pastoral team who means more to me than I can communicate. Thank you for their heart uh, to, to take care of Ginger and me and bless us. And Thank you for the church's support during a season of refreshing. And I, I pray today that as we look at your scripture, you would meet us, for we all need what you communicate in this passage. So help us, Lord, we pray, Lord, and um, help me communicate your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm a bit rusty, but here we go. Uh, Summer break is coming to an end right now, isn't it? I mean, that's the season we're in. So Rob prayed, people going back to school. Uh, and this is a time when, when things change in our culture. Uh, it changes in some workplaces. Maybe projects start to kick back in because now everybody's in the office. It's been all summer. Folks are on, uh, you know, this person's on vacation or that key person's on vacation. And uh, so now all of the, uh, the vacation, uh, you know, default emails are going away saying, hey, I'm gone. You know, I'll contact you when I get back. So you can actually get a hold of people now. And so things ramp back up in many of our jobs. And for those with kids, things are ramping back up. Uh, the lazy, hazy days of summer are coming to an end, and it's about to be hectic for many, especially if you're a mom with kids. Um, and it's, 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 it's about to be hectic with school, with extracurricular activities. Um, there's there's going to be a flurry of running here and running there. It's exciting for about a week, and then it just starts to wear until you just try to make it through May. Um, and so there. It's, we're coming into a season in the fall when new things are kicked off, where new things are happening, and it can be a time where life is getting active and busy. And so today I want to talk about the importance of calm. I want to talk about the importance of quiet, the importance of having a quiet 
soul. And, and the psalm we're going to look at today, Psalm 131, is about cultivating a quiet soul. I don't know if you knew that's a biblical value, but it, it really is to cultivate a quiet soul, to be, no matter what is happening on the outside, for the Holy Spirit to bring us to a place of rest on the inside. And that's what David talks about in Psalm 131. Let me read it to you. This is God's word to us. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So David is here talking about a quiet soul, painting a picture with a metaphor of a winged child on its mother's lap and saying, I have quieted my soul. And I want to ask you this morning, do you know anything about that experience? Do you know that experience personally? Is your soul quiet? And if not, if your soul is noisy today, do you know what he's talking about here? Do you know how to calm a noisy soul? Now, this is not a personality issue. It's not talking about, well, some people are laid back and things just wash over and doesn't bother them. This is not a personality issue. Um, it's also not a circumstantial issue. Uh, David is a king. So he's not talking about create a life with very few responsibilities, limited activities. He has more responsibilities on his shoulder than anyone in this room knows anything about. He's got tremendous burdens and responsibility. He's got a nation and not just any nation, but God's covenant people looking to him. So he knows tremendous responsibility. He's got a full calendar. He's in high demand. He's critiqued. Uh, he knows pressure. And yet he describes a work of God in his heart that changes him in the midst of significant responsibility. So it's not a personality type. It's not a circumstance. It's something, it's something that the Lord does inside of us. Back in May when I first went into my sabbatical, I would have said my soul was calm. I, I actually... Uh, when they were praying for us to send us out, I made a comment along the lines, okay, this is not something that we really have to have or need. We're not having a life crisis. That was true and is true. Um, and, but I felt like I did, didn't really need to slow down and rest, but it was going to be great. I would get some rest, and then I was going to study a lot of exciting stuff, which I did. But it was going to be really stimulating to me. But when I slowed down, I very quickly realized how noisy my soul was. I, I realized that my mind is always running and that there is this low-grade pressure, this low-grade stress, this low-grade tension that I carry just below the surface that's always barking at me. It's not loud. It's not a crisis, but it's always there. And I realized that I, when I slow down long enough to be aware of the tension under the surface, that I frequently just turn to some kind of distraction, often on my phone, but other places, just something to distract me. And then one of the surprises I had, two people on the day I left for sabbatical, or the day I, my last Sunday here, two people said to me, one said, this is my prayer for you. Someone else actually boldly said, I feel like the Lord has given me an impression for you. And they both were that something surprising is going to happen unexpected while you're away. And a couple things happened. But one of the unexpected ones was this, that I just came to realize the state of my own heart once I slowed down. And uh, one of the first things I read was a book on solitude and silence, which I was not planning to read, but kind of accidentally happened upon the very first day or two I was off. And so then I went away for a few days of solitary uh, time and silence without Ginger, just me, and what a challenge. 
I just got all alone in a cabin and I just found myself slowing down and then just like having certain impulses, grab my phone, read something, distract my mind, it's quiet, listen to some music, watch Netflix, get online, send a text, but nobody's emailing me, nobody's sending me text because I'm off and they're not supposed to do that. And I don't have sermons to prayer and people to counsel and plans to make and I, I just, whoa, it's quiet and this is crazy. I read a story in Science Magazine this recently, very recently, about a study they did about quiet and leaving people alone with their own thoughts and how much people don't like it. And they did a study and they found out that most people left in a room alone with nothing but their thoughts don't like it beyond about 6 to 15 minutes. And in one study, they actually gave people an opportunity to, for some stimulation outside of just their thoughts. It was literal stimulation. It was an electric shock. And most men, I think the study was for 15 minutes, within the 15 minutes would take an electric shock just to do something, less women, but most men just to do something because they were going crazy with their own thoughts and their own mind in the quiet. Left to themselves without diversion and without distraction, they would pick an electric shock. I wasn't that bad off, but, but <laughs> though I didn't have the offer of an electric shock. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century mathematician and physicist, but also a Christian theologian, and he once wrote this, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. All of man, humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Why? Because when all diversion and all distraction and all activity is stripped away, we're left to face ourselves and God, and that's an uncomfortable place for most people. So I don't want to be the guy that just lost 30 pounds and is coming in and telling everybody what to eat and what not to eat and telling about their CrossFit routine and whatever else. So because I had the really the privilege and blessing of some extended quiet. I don't want to come in and say what's wrong with the rest of y'all or something like that. I don't want this sermon to be like that at all. But I do want to look at this text and see what we can learn about being quiet in our soul, even if our schedule isn't quiet. And then I'm going to make some application at the end, some, I hope, practical application. So first of all, I'm going to look at four things in this psalm about what we learn about a quiet soul. Uh, which isn't tied entirely to physical quiet, but I believe physical quiet is mandatory uh, in our lives at some point, at some points within our lives if we're going to have a quiet soul. Here's the first thing David tells us is that a quiet soul is not proud. A quiet soul is not proud. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up and my eyes are not raised too high. Now, uh, the NIV and the New American Standard Bible both translate this the same, and they translate it differently than the ESV here. Uh, and the, NA, the NASB in particular is a pretty, uh, pretty strict wooden kind of translation, and this is how they translate it. My heart is not proud, and my eyes are not haughty. My heart is not proud and my eyes are not haughty. That's exactly what David's saying. My heart is not lifted up. What does that mean? I don't exalt myself. I'm not full of myself. I'm not consumed with myself. It's not all about me. Uh, I'm not focused. My life is not focused on myself. My heart is not lifted up. This is what he's talking about. I'm not proud. I don't have haughty eyes, he says. Now, we don't use that expression so much, haughty eyes, but if you think about it, haughty eyes, it means to look down on others. The ESV says they're not raised too high. So we might say something like this, you know, I don't walk around with my nose up in the air. We don't say eyes lifted high, but we say I don't walk around with my nose up in the air because what happens if your nose is up in the air? Then you're looking down upon everybody else. So it's the same thing. It's saying I'm not looking down upon others. The proud heart, the lifted heart, pride always calls us to look down upon others or at least to compare ourselves with others. David says, I'm not consumed with myself and I'm not consumed with looking down on others, critiquing others, judging others, evaluating others, 
Haughty eyes are always looking down in judgment and critique of others. But what's the motive of the haughty eyes? The motive is pride, so that I feel better about myself. I look down on others so that I feel good about me. I compare myself to others so that I feel secure about me. It's pride, haughty eyes. It's looking down. It's comparison. It's seeing how I measure myself with others. Am I as smart as another? Am I as wealthy as another? Am I as well-liked as another? As, am I as attractive as another? Am I as talented as another? In a church context, am I as godly as another? And so we compare ourselves. Pride's not just looking down. It's not just haughty eyes that look down like I'm always better. Sometimes you say, well, that's not me. I don't look down on other people. I don't have haughty eyes. I don't look down on anyone else. Matter of fact, I feel very bad about myself when I look and compare myself to others. But the very act of comparison is proud. It's pride. When we look around and measure ourselves among others and feel inferior and are therefore discouraged, it's just an inverted pride. It's just a wounded pride because what we wanted was to feel superior to someone else, and so we don't. We feel bad. So he's, he's saying, my soul is not proud. My heart is not lifted up. I'm not looking down upon myself. My, they're not raised too high in the way I esteem myself versus uh, how I look at other people. Or as the NIV and ASB says, my eyes are not haughty in comparison to other people. The proud heart and the haughty eyes and the constant comparing never produces a quiet soul. You never get, I never get to the calmed and quiet soul, the weaned child, the weaned child is my soul within me. We never get to verse 2 if we're stuck in verse 1. Pride, comparison, evaluation, how do I feel about myself with others, consumed with myself, it leads to a noisy soul, voices always in my head, as opposed to a quiet soul. And it's for this reason that one of the greatest modern barriers to a calm and quiet soul in our, in our lives is social media. It's one. It's not the only one. There's plenty of barriers. In David's day, with, uh, without electricity, you could have a noisy soul. But there's something different about our day. There's something different about the temptations we face. There's something different about what, what we have that no previous generation has ever had when it comes to comparison, when it comes to how do I measure up, when it comes to being consumed with myself and my place and, and, and my inclusion and my friends and how many people like stuff about my life and me. I mean, historically, you can never get rated on instantly. Here's my family. Do you like it or don't you? <laughs> Here's a picture of my family. Like, silence. Never in history could you get that kind of thing. Never in history has any group of people had 24-hour access to a highly edited version of all of their friends' happiest moments their best faces, their most romantic dates, their most memorable vacation highlights, their kids' brightest moments, first day of school, anybody, their kids' brightest moments, their workouts, their clothes, their best meals. Never have you been able to compare yourself with everybody else and evaluate yourself with everyone else's life. When I was in high school, if you didn't get invited out with a small group of friends who were getting together or a party or whatever it was uh, over the weekend, maybe you heard about it on Monday when people were laughing about it. And say, oh, yeah, that was so much fun. What, what, what was so much fun? Oh, oh, nothing. I mean, maybe you got left out and you felt that. Now you get a live stream of moments. You get it. You can see it all on Snapchat. You can see it all on uh, how, whatever the medium is, Instagram, you can see it all. What's happening live, who's there, what they're doing, and, and you're not there. Or you are there, and in pride, you're showing everybody else that you are there. So it's no, it's no wonder that this current millennial generation experiences depression and anxiety at all-time high rates, uh, unlike ever before. And many argue that at least part of the reason, there's many reasons, but at least part of the reason is this idea of comparison which does not produce a quiet soul, but can produces an, a restless soul, an anxious soul. 
Generation Z, which is those born from 95 to, well, people have different end dates, but about 95 until now. Generation Z is, is even more on social than millennials are, and there's nothing wrong with social media, absolutely nothing wrong with it. However, we just need to be wise partakers. Generation Z, teen suicide has doubled in the, let me back up, teen suicide attempts and suicide, but teen suicide attempts have doubled in the last eight years in the U.S., doubled. And some psychologists would say, some social commentators would say, this has a role, a part in it. It's a lack of a quiet soul it is a, it is that, that, that ultimately leads to a constant, where am I, what's going on, who's doing what, and all of us are, are just distracted. Tony Ranke in his book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, said an average person checks their smartphone 81,500 times a year, once every 4.3 minutes. All people that have smartphones, the average is they're checking it once every 4.3 minutes for all kinds of stuff, weather, headlines, text, all kinds of stuff. But it's difficult to have a quiet soul when we're chained to a noisy device. We buy into this idea that I need to be connected, I need to be available, I need to know what's going on with everyone at all times, and so we believe those lies that I need to know, I need to be in the know, I need to be available, I need to be reachable, I need to be connected, and then from those lies we adopt habits, and with those habits it's nearly impossible to have a quiet soul. So, a quiet soul is, David says, I am not proud, my eyes are not too haughty. My eyes are not haughty, rather, which I'm, I'm talking about has something to do with comparison. But secondly, and this is really important, the quiet soul is not presumptuous. These first two ideas, I think, are the most important. The quiet soul is not presumptuous. Look what he says. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Presumption means uh, to be presumptuous means to fail to observe what is permitted or appropriate. To fail to, 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 I'm sorry, let me back up. Presum I'm still rusty. Presumptuous means failing to observe the limits of what is permitted or appropriate. It's failing to know the limits. It's going beyond the limits and presuming. That's exactly what the verse is saying. I don't occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me. Things that are too great and too marvelous for David are things that belong to the Lord and to the Lord only. In other words, he's saying, I know my place and I know God's place. And I try not to confuse the two. He's not saying, I, I don't occupy myself with things great and marvelous. He's not saying, hey, live an uninspired life, never think great thoughts, never stretch yourself. He's not advocating aim low and accomplish little and you'll be at rest. No, you may not be at rest at all. I may be very restless with that approach. That's not what he's saying. But he's advocating that God has set boundaries. He's the king. He has high ambition, high responsibility. He's a high performer, high producer. But he's saying, I know my limits. I'm not concerning myself with things too great and too marvelous. He's leading God's people. That's great. That's marvelous. He's needing to know the direction. He's responsible, ultimately, he's not a priest, but he's responsible for the worship of the nation, the armies of the nation. He's responsible for everything. And so there is this sense in which he's thinking about things that are very great and very marvelous, and yet he says, I know my boundaries. I don't occupy myself with stuff that is God's business and not mine. He's leading a nation, but he knows his limit. There is a limit to where he lets his heart and where he lets his mind go. He's not seeking to know the unknowable. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. It says there are secret things that belong to God, there are revealed things that belong to all of us and tell us how we are to live. That, that means that God doesn't give us access to all of his plans, all of his thoughts, all of his actions. God does not answer all of our questions. 
God does not explain all of our circumstances. And to cross that line into his place, into mystery, is to attempt to pry into his secret plan, and that's presumptuous. David says, I don't occupy myself. I don't fill my mind with things too wonderful, too marvelous for me. He leaves it with the Lord, and therefore, in the next verse, he's pictured as a weaned child in its mother's lap. A weaned child in its mother's lap, I know it's just a picture, it's just a metaphor, but a weaned child in its mother's lap is not concerned about what's happening all over the world and what the Lord's doing here. They're just, just at rest, confident, trusting its parent, its mother in that case. By not occupying himself with things too great and things too marvelous, David is avoiding the temptation to be God. When we take on the, the burdens and the responsibilities of God, we are putting ourselves in the place of God. Of Psalm 131 and the verse that we're reading right now, David Pallison, who went to be with the Lord this summer while I was away, um, a tremendous author and counselor, uh, he wrote this, most of the noise in our souls is generated by trying to control the uncontrollable. Most of the noise in our souls is generated by trying to control the uncontrollable. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Therefore, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Here's the reality. You cannot know why certain people do what they do. Why circumstances have turned out and are turning out like they are in your life. As much as you desire, you cannot live a predictable life where you write the script and everything goes completely or fairly close to the storyline that you have scripted for yourself. The reality is that we all wrestle with trying to control people and circumstances that we cannot control. And when we do, when we are entering the area of things too marvelous for us, too wonderful, too glorious, the, the hidden things, the secret things of the Lord, we will find ourselves with a noisy soul that shouts with constant worry, constant anxiety, constant fear, constant burdens. And David just says, I don't go there. At least at his best moment when he's writing the Bible, he says, I don't go there. I don't know about 20. <laughs> he had his moments, no doubt. Uh, he was a broken man, a sinful man. But as he's composing this song of worship to the Lord, he's saying, man, I got to know my limits. I got to know what is God's, what is mine. What's God's responsibility, what's my responsibility. What, is, what won't I know, what can't I know. And I got to rest in that. I don't try to figure it all out. And David had stuff, man. If you look at his life, he had stuff. The guy who's saying, I don't occupy myself with all these things tomorrow. That's beyond my pay grade is how we say it. That's beyond my pay grade. I mean, there's stuff in David's life. A, a prophet comes and says, you're the next king. And what happens? The present king starts throwing spears at him, trying to kill him. He's got to go, God, this is crazy. You're, I, it was great out in the pasture with the sheep. Life was safe, comfortable. My soul was at rest out there for sure. And now I'm called to be king, and they're killing me. They're chasing me. I'm on the run. Much later in his life, after he establishes a powerful kingship and God works through him wonderfully, I'm sure he could look at his life and go, hey, you know what? It was bad at the beginning. We had a rocky start, but things are going great now. Man, now I've got a calm spirit. Now I'm leading. Things are smooth. What ultimately happens in his life? His own son tries to take the kingdom, and apparently Absalom has, has the strength at one point. It looks like he's going to do it. So after all this, it looks like his life will come to an end with his own child uh, treating him as an enemy, trying to steal the kid. This isn't Saul, this is family. I don't occupy myself with things too marvelous and wonderful for me. God, why are you letting this happen? You tell me David never asked, why, what's up with this God? Why are you letting this happen? This makes no sense. But I don't occupy myself with things too great, too wonderful for me. I've calmed and quieted my soul. There's a place to humbly respect the barrier between the eternal God and the finite me. Let me ask you this. What questions do you need to let go of to have a quiet soul? 
What questions do you need to entrust by faith to the Lord to have a quiet soul? Why did that happen to me? That's a question. Why did she die? Why did he leave me? Why can't I land a job? Why am I not married? Why is my child sick? Why is my child not a Christian? Why won't my husband change? Why am I not healed? Or one that answers all of those, God, why don't you answer my prayers? Doesn't mean to stop praying, but there is a place for us to entrust matters that we will not get an explanation or may not, may not get an explanation for. For the sake of trusting God and honoring God, as well as for the sake of experiencing the rest that the Lord has for us. Quiet soul is not presumptuous. There are answers that God does not supply. There are circumstances and people we cannot control. And to cultivate a quiet soul, we must know our place. We must know God's place. And we must not allow the two to be confused. Next, the quiet soul is not restless. Verse 2, I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. I, I just think this is powerful, a powerful poetic imagery. This is David. This is not some sort of genteel, uh, it's not like some gentleman poet guy uh, writing a poet. This is a guy who is a warrior, a king, a leader, the slayer of the guy who cuts off Goliath's head and shows it for the Lord's glory. <laughs> and here, here he's not cutting off giant's heads. He's a baby in its mother's lap. Scholar Tremper Longman explains the picture. He says this, A weaned child can rest comfortably in its mother's arms, while a baby who is not yet weaned is fussy and restless. Here the psalmist provides a picture, image of the kind of trusting confidence that he is now experiencing. Not a fussy, restless baby wanting the breast, hungry. This is a weaned child who can sit in its mother's lap. Not fussy, but at rest. It's the kind of confidence that David is experiencing by God's grace. And it didn't just happen by accident. He actually says, I calmed and quieted my soul. This is, this is a part of our sanctification that is, I, I think we could fairly say, cooperative. God does his part. It's God's work. It's a gift of grace, but it's something we receive, something that we also cultivate. From, on God's side, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that brings greater confidence in God and his word. And from our side, it's the process of turning to God and turning away from whatever brings restlessness to our soul and putting our confidence in him. It's, it's calming our soul by reassuring our soul the promises of Scripture, the truth of God, the character of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a, a pastor uh, from the 1900s in London. He, uh, he has famously said, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Talking to ourselves. It is telling the re calming our, a restless soul is telling our souls the truth of Scripture that God is in control, that he's not only in control, but that he's good and that he's faithful and that he's trustworthy and that no matter what we see or what we experience, he has not left us. He will never leave and will never forsake us. There's a big difference in listening to the restless soul, which paints worst-case scenarios you know that experience, man, I sure do. Just going down, something happened, you get news, this happened, that happened, this person said this, that person did that, you feel this, they tell you that, and all of a sudden you just paint it out in your mind. And, and before you know it, you've spent minutes, hours, days maybe, painting worst case scenarios in one's mind, listening to ourselves rather than assuring ourselves of the faithfulness of God and saying, God, I, this is in your hands. I can't figure all that out, so I don't need to paint the storyline in my mind. It's, it's doing no good. I trust you. Asking for his peace to replace our restless thoughts, our preoccupation with why, 
why, why? Last idea here is that the quiet soul hopes in the Lord. In closing, David addresses God's people. So we find out from the beginning that a, a quiet soul is not proud. We find out it is not presumptuous. It is not restless, but it calms and quiets itself by not just listening to itself, by, but by ultimately affirming the truth of Scripture to itself. And then here's how he affirms it. Verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord. The quiet soul hopes in the Lord. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This, this isn't just some trite saying, it'll be okay. But no, this is, a, this is a tangible, fixed, confident hope in the Lord. Some people point out the fact that this psalm, Psalm 131, is matched with Psalm 130. Uh, there, most of the psalms don't occur in any kind of an order, but these do. It's, a, it's in a series of psalms called the Psalms of a, Songs of Ascents that they sang as they went to worship God uh, for the annual pilgrimage feast, the three feast celebrations of the year they had. So they sang these songs along the way. So it's certainly possible Psalm 131 was sung right after Psalm 130. At least it was sung at the same time in the same group of psalms. So Psalm 131 is connected to Psalm 130, uh, and the other song of sense in, in a way that other psalms wouldn't be connected. This group of psalms are connected. So people have pointed out, verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. We get it's connected to 130. Look at the last verse of 130. says the same thing. Oh, verse 1, uh, I'm sorry, the second to last. Uh, psalm 130, verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord for, now there we get the reason, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Do you see what the focus of the hope is? The focus is on the love of God. Hope in, in the Lord, for the, with the Lord there is steadfast love. This word, steadfast love, means he's faithful to his covenant. He's bound himself to you. He's committed himself to you. And he will be faithful to his promises, his commitment to you. It, it is a covenant that he made with his people. And for those of us this side of the cross and resurrection, the covenant is with us in Christ. It's a new covenant. It's a better covenant. The steadfast love, the hope, the steadfast love covenant that we have is better than what David had. It's what he looked forward to and what he could only imagine that Jesus has come and lived in our place and died in our place, that he took the punishment for our sin, that he was raised to defeat the power of sin, and, and that, that he was our substitute, that he did for us what we never could do for ourselves. He gave us new life. And so he's saying hope in the love of Christ ultimately would be the application. In him there's plentiful redemption. He will redeem us from all of our iniquities means sins. He will set us free. How does that bring comfort to our souls? Well, a, a million ways if we're aware of how we stand before the Lord left to ourselves. But I think at a very basic level, it, it brings quietness to our soul because it reminds us that none of us could ever be good enough, that we couldn't control it, that we couldn't make life happen, that we couldn't be religious enough, that we couldn't be holy enough for God, that we couldn't be obedient enough, that if I was just a better person, that wouldn't happen, or she wouldn't do that, or he wouldn't say that. It takes all the pressure off in saying that you are accepted by God solely because of what Christ has done for you and not what you ever could do for him. You talk about quiet soul, the empty tomb represents that the pressure is off, that the burden has been removed. It doesn't mean that we don't have problems and it doesn't mean, mean that we don't have griefs and sorrows because we do, but it means that we have a hope in the midst of those, that we have a confidence in the midst of those, that if God has met our greatest need, our greatest need is not what I feel the most pain about today or the most uh, confusion about today or the most anger about today. My greatest need is probably not that. My greatest need is how could I ever stand before a holy God and be welcomed into his presence for all eternity and live forever fruitfully in a new heavens and new earth. The greatest question of my soul is how can I be right with God? Not why did this happen or why did that happen, but how in the world can this great problem of my separation from God be solved? And that was solved completely outside of me completely by his love. 
Matter of fact, Romans 8.32 says, if he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Paul is saying that very point. God has met your greatest need. It's here. There's steadfast love. There's plentiful redemption. So hope in the Lord. Who's done anything remotely like that for you? Who can do anything remotely like that for you? Who has that kind of power? So, what is the noise in your soul that is muting that truth? What is the noise in your soul that's muffling that voice of Christ and his love for you? What is it that's muting that voice? Where are you restless and agitated? Where are you fearful and anxious? When you listen to yourself, what do you hear? How can you calm your soul? My time's about up, so I'm going to make a few points. And practically, I think I'm going to develop this out a little bit uh, on the podcast this week. If you have questions about this, there's a text a number right there. You can text a question in, and we do a podcast that comes out middle of the week where we answer questions. But I think I'm going to ask myself a question and answer it about this. So I'm going to talk a little bit more practically because I'm about out of time, and, and we didn't get a lot of practical here. Here's the first idea, I think, about calming our soul. Realize this is God's design for you. There's some of us in the room that can't even imagine that. It's too good to be true. It's impossible. Yeah, on vacation. Yeah, when life's really good. Yeah, when the job goes great. Yeah, when I get married. Yeah, when I get the promotion. Yes, when we're able to have a child. Yes, when those children move out of the house. Whatever it is, there's, there's coming some point where I can have this kind of rest in my soul. When that person leaves me alone. Oh, when that boss quits. You pick it. When that neighbor moves. Something. Okay, when that happens, when I'm out of debt, when that happens, I can have calm. I believe God wants us to have calm for our soul right now. That's his best plan for all of us. That's his best plan. That's not, that's not hyper-faith theology or something. That is, I have weaned and quieted my soul and trusted the Lord who is good, whether my circumstances are great or terrible. So realize that's God's design for you. It's fruit of faith and trust in the gospel. Number two, deal with the noise. There's two, two central ideas, I think, of noise here. One is pride and one is presumption. Lord, how can you help me, help me deal with the pride, how I'm, how I'm looking and comparing? Help me with that. Help me with the presumption because I cannot let it go. I cannot let it go. Until you answer this, I cannot serve you or be at rest. i got to let it go. Memorize this psalm. Here's number three. Memorize this psalm and stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. Memorize this. Tell yourself this. Tell yourself Romans 8.32. Allow the word of God to speak to you. So realize it's God's design. Begin to deal with the noise of your heart. Memorize some truth that helps you. Read some truth. Number four, quiet your soul in the presence of God. And I would start physically. That's not the answer ultimately. Ultimately, it's heart noise. But I would start physically. What physically distracts you? you we have to punctuate our lives. I, I realized I came from a very unusual experience. I don't know. I may never have that experience the rest of my life. I don't know. Unusual, rare, I get that. But we all have to find what is physically distracting us before quiet, before the Lord, dealing with our soul, listening to him. So soul quiet is different than physical quiet, but I don't think you can have soul quiet if you never have physical quiet before the Lord. They're not the same, but you got to have one to get the other. So what is it? Is it music? Is it the internet? Is it social media? Is it email? Is it text? Is it TV? Is it humans? If you're a mom with little kids, is it little humans? What is it that is distracting you from quiet? And what daily practice or habit could you begin to embrace that would help that? Getting up a few minutes earlier, staying up a few minutes later, taking a break at lunch. I don't know what it is for you and your schedule, but where in the rhythm of your life can you get quiet before the Lord? I was recently scanning a book about habits. That's a big topic. If you read popular books today, How to Develop Habits, and this is a Christian book about habits, but he was listing various habits in his life that have helped him. And here's one of his habits. It was called, When I Wake, Bible Before Phone. So I don't need to know the news. I don't need to know the email. I don't see what, need to know what text I got in the night. I, I don't need to 
see who's doing what on social media. He, he said, here's my commitment. I'm not saying you have to do this. It's not a legalistic commitment. But he said, I'm going to hear from God before I hear from anyone else. That's just a practice, he said, he made for himself. I thought, man, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Because you can get off fast on the phone. Man, you can get off. You can, before you're even out of bed, you can be anxiety-ridden. <laughs> the headlines enough will make that depress anybody So, in, in our country, right? Okay. So maybe it's daily. Maybe it's weekly. What could you put into your life weekly? Maybe it's less than weekly. Could you get a little time away? Husbands, could you give your, your wife a morning away on a Saturday or something like that or Sunday after church where you get the kids and she gets the morning away with a Bible and a journal in the house? You take them away or go to a coffee shop or whatever's Go sit outside by a lake uh, when it cools down a little bit. So whatever's, I don't know, whatever's comfortable for you, go for a walk. What is it? that you get away from everything else and could, could clear your head. Maybe it's a day away. There's some of us, I think, until we get like a day, like a full day to be able to think, we won't even know what kind of busyness is in our soul. And maybe you can't pull a day away anytime real soon. So could you get a half a day? Could you get two hours? Could you get, everybody can get two hours if you can't. See Caleb, he'll get you two hours. Yeah, he can fix it. I know, I know he can fix it. <laughs> we'll never have a quiet soul in the busyness if we don't begin to have a regular quiet at some point before the Lord. And lastly, I'd say ask for help. If you're trapped in comparison, addiction to diversion, many of us are just addicted to distraction. If, you, if that's you, if you're trapped in presumption, I cannot let it go. Why? I'm strategizing. I'm complaining. Why? 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 I cannot let it go. I can't get past that. Talk to someone. Get counsel. Get some prayer. And we're going to pray right now. Lord, thank you that we can have quiet, not because we embrace some meditation technique, not because we adjust our schedules, not because we change our circumstances or our personality. We can have calm because what Christ has done for us in the midst of hectic stuff, painful stuff, challenging stuff, circumstances that don't change, I pray that you would give us the calm assurance that you are with us, that you are for us, and that nothing will separate us from your love. And I pray for those of us in the congregation right now wrestling, that you would communicate your peace and your grace to us today. There are challenges in this room. There are perplexing circumstances. There are things happening that none of us can explain in some of the lives of our lives in this room. But we just look to you and we say, Lord, help us to pray this prayer that we're not concerned with things too marvelous or amazing, incomprehensible beyond us. Help us to quiet our souls and experience the rest that you bring, the great rest from our works and from our labors, the rest that comes from grace because of Jesus to experience that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.